Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Freddie DeBoer. How are you doing, Freddie? I'm good, Richard. How are you? I'm doing great, man. So I've, I've, I've liked your, you know, I've, I can't say I've been following you forever, but I've been following you maybe for a year or so. And I really like, you know, I like your work. I think you're, you're very, you're, you're just, a, you're a great writer. I mean, that, that's not, you know, that's people, some people have something to say. Some people are good writers, but you know, few people are both. Uh, so I think we come at things from a different perspective, but I think, you know, your work is, your work is great. And so we're here to talk about your book, uh, The Cult of Smart. And, you know, I, I like the book and I, and I agree with it on the, on the main points. Um, basically, can you can actually summarize it for the audience? I think most will be familiar, but for, for any who are not. Sure. Um, uh, For a long time, the United States has been trying to fit a lot of square pegs into round holes by forcing everybody into uh, the college pipeline. So, um, you know, I would I would uh, chalk a lot of that up to the Reagan and Thatcherite revolution, which, uh, you know, instituted neoliberal capitalism on a grand scale and uh, cut the legs out from underneath uh, occupations like manufacturing that previously had been um, uh, places where people without college educations could reliably get at least a middle class income. You also have uh, what many people don't realize is like the the size of the government now is actually dramatically smaller than it once was. Um, People think it's this ever growing blah, blah, but it's not particularly the federal government, which peaked inside of the 1940s. Um, uh, And that's another source of stable middle-class jobs uh, that didn't always require a college education, although now they more and more do. So you have a bunch of people who used to be able to go and get um, stability and material comfort um, without a college education for various reasons, policy reasons, those things are uh, removed. And so now the, the the call goes out to force everybody into college. And every president since Reagan has it in one, at one point or another um, insisted that college is the, uh, <clears throat> the key to our uh, economic future. But if you are uh, in co- a college atmosphere, particularly in sort of not very competitive state schools, like I have been um, uh, for a long time, um, you can see all the cracks in that, which is that we're a huge number of students are coming in, taking on student loan debt, never graduating, etc. Um, and uh, they don't want to be there. The schools aren't uh, equipped to remediate in the way that they need. And many of these students are simply suffering from a talent deficit in terms of like not having uh, the human capital to be able to succeed in this way. So the whole point of the book is like, rather than trying to force everybody into that path, are there ways that we can open up more paths to people? Um, and <clears throat> ultimately, uh, if the economy is going to be something that continues to produce um, a sort of a case of winners and is immensely productive in doing so, but also sort of sets aside this um layer of people who ha- appear to have no value to the, the current economy, um, do we have a moral obligation to provide for them in other ways? And it just explores what some of those other ways would be. But it starts with, and must start with, the fact that like the difference in human capital is real, right? That, in other words, that different human beings genuinely have different levels of uh, sort of underlying uh, uh, intellectual or cognitive ability. And if you can't acknowledge that, you can never actually institute a humane policy because you'll keep coming up with solutions that are like, and then we'll make the ones who aren't smart, smart. And that is the policy that has failed. Yeah. And so you're, I mean, so there's a right-wing version and a left-wing version of this, right? And to to you, you think they're both just denying sort of biological reality. You know, it's it's strange. I mean, we're, we're, we don't like, you know, everyone would see the absurdity if we tried to make everyone into like a basketball player or a football player. I mean, everyone would see that that was stupid. Or we just said, you know, everyone has to lift, you know, uh, you know, has to bench press 180 pounds by the time that they're this age. And it seems like, you know, there's just, but uh, when it comes to mental capabilities, there's just sort of no limits to the extent which we, to which we think it, it it's plastic that we can just uh, that we can expand people's you know ability to learn and that that's a that's unfortunate I mean it really is I, I, in your world I, I gather from the book there would be because one of your recommendations that actually that I like was I think you, you said the dropout age should be like twelve and a lot of people would take advantage of that um, I'm sure they would and uh, yeah so you see it's accurate to say your world would have less schooling right because we're just forcing people to do things that they shouldn't be doing and that they have no reason to do. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I have no way to, 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 uh, perfectly quantify this, but I think in my ideal world, something like three quarters of American colleges and universities would close. Um, because I don't think that, I don't, I don't think that there is, I mean, I think that like, um, 
it is irrational to have the number of colleges that we have now, even for the number of students that we have now. But in my ideal world, where dramatically fewer students are feeling compelled to go to college, right? Um, so not not out of genuine desire to go. Um, if you cut, if you just remove those, then you're talking about mass collegiate closures anyway. And I will note on the the twelve the dropout at twelve uh, age, which has been a big sticking point for people. And many people say, you know, I'm so on board. So dropping out as twelve is crazy. And the thing that I would impress on them is that like. You, they're already not getting an education after that age. Many of them, yeah. they're just not formally allowed to drop out. Right. I mean, right. it's important to say like, there's a huge number of students, number one, who drop out, even though the high school dropout rate has artificially been lowered over the course of decades. But there's also just a ton of kids who like technically graduate, but who don't do anything. Right. Like it, you know, we've, because the, the graduation, the high school graduation rate was considered this, this national scandal. Um, you know, so much pressure was put on that metric that um, districts and schools found all kinds of ways to sort of just get the kids across the finish line to make their numbers look better. But what that means is that, you know, just the degree means nothing. And you have tons of kids who do just absolutely minimal learning in their high school experience and then collect the degree anyway. And so from my perspective, like um, that's, you know, a more honest system is to say, there are kids who aren't good at this and don't want to do this and will effectively opt out of the system, even if they can't drop out at 12. So you might as well allow them to do that and start to you know, create uh, avenues for them to be more productive with those years. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember, yeah, you talk about the kids already not getting an education, not doing anything. I remember just going to junior high and high school and already there would be kids, you know, for uh, eighth grade, seventh grade, freshman year of high school, they would show up, um, you know, they would show up high, they would just go to sleep and then they'd wake up at the end of the day. I mean, there were people just did this for years and years and I guess they were just still coming because they were going to, you know, they were going to probably leave at 16 um, and it was just, it was just pointless. So yeah, those kids are already, you know, they're already not, they're already, maybe they're dropped out there, they're out of they're out of the system. Um, so yeah, the, the, you know, so, you know, I'm on, on board with all of that. Uh, some of your other recommendations though, I mean, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, I have more of a problem with, so the, the school choice one, one thing you want to do is you want to get rid of, uh, charter schools. Right. And to me, you know, I, I think you demolish, I think one good, ar- one argument that people make for charter schools is that they're just going to make everyone smarter. Right. You, you show that this is a lot of their so-called, you know, better results are our selection effects and these other things. Um, but to me, I mean, to me, it's, it, it's not about making people smarter. You know, to me, it's about, look, I, I, I hate it. I went to school and I hated it. I, I was absolutely, I was absolutely miserable. I was obviously, you know, intellectually capable, but I just, I did not like the the sort of the regimentation of it. I didn't like, you know, having to ask to go to the bathroom. It was just a very, uh, you know, having to raise my hand, being told when to talk. So this this was just very difficult for me. Um, and the rest of my life has not been like that. Why? Because the rest of my life is governed by by the market and where I can, if I don't like a restaurant or I don't like a group of people or I don't like, you know, not just markets, but, you know, it's governed by by choice. So to me, school choice is just getting people out of the one, you know, one size fits all uh, sort of way of schooling. Even if we don't make people smarter or not make people smarter, that's not the point. Just I want childhood to be less miserable. Uh, what about that argument for, for a well, uh, I do think that the, the argument to misery, I think, is the strongest argument if you are a parent for caring about where your kid goes to school because um you know this there's sort of the social uh atmosphere and the and that aspect um is just much more salient uh for your kid's life than the supposed educational advantage of one place to another i mean look first i think what we have to be clear like is you know the charter movement has always sold itself on a sort of on quantitative educational metrics of dubious uh, validity to say we are we provide better education. We take the same students and we turn them into different. Uh, uh, we produce better results. Um, I you know I've made that case at, at length that that's not correct both in the book but also on my news, my newsletter. So if we you know <clears throat> to talk about school choice, the first thing is if we're going to acknowledge that that's not really um, a genuine effect, and like a lot of people are going to get you know, no longer be on board in, in the first place. But to me, the bigger thing is like compared to what you're saying is that like. I would be into school choice if it was a, a difference in, in anything other than administration. So I, I think it's important to say the experience of going to a charter school for the average kid is not that different unless the charter school is in a position where it is better resourced than the public school, in which case we're not really making the comparison we think we're making, right? To give you an example of like, here's the kind of school choice I think would be really cool. A friend of mine works... Uh, at this facility that is connected to uh, New Haven, Connecticut public schools. Um, as you can probably imagine, um, a small, poor city, uh, high minority, their educational metrics are quite awful uh, in general. 
Um, but they have this special facility, which is on the edge of town and it's a farm. Um, and, uh, the kids can go there and they can do things that, yes, they have some sort of conventional educational things mixed in with them, but they go and they learn how to keep bees or they go and they literally do farming. They learn all sorts of things about nature, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a really, the cool thing about this program is that like, um, with some restrictions, any student can opt to spend like, uh, two days out of every six weeks or something like that. And then there's students who are in a special program who can go there much more often. Um, and a lot of kids take advantage of this. It's just like, I just can't stand another day in this building. And they just go to this cool facility out in the woods somewhere and do farming and stuff like that. Um, where that like, a, where school choice was like that, where the experience was different, yeah. then I'd be all for it. The problem is, is that like, from the perspective of the student, you know, um, it's very likely that many charter school students have no idea that they're in a charter school, right? And when they go out and play with other kids who go to the regular public school, the way that they discuss the classroom experience is almost identical, right? Like uh, sometimes people who are not sort of plugged in seem to assume that there's like very different pedagogical things going on in charter schools, but it's almost an identical uh, curriculum usually. Right. Like the, the pedagogy is the same. And so it, because it's purely an administrative change. Right. Ultimately, it's always driven by a perception of who is saving money compared to what and who is getting the money. Right. And so um, there's a lot of really passionate advocates for charter schools. A guy like John Chait uh, for New York Magazine, who has this incredibly romanticized view because he doesn't have to interact with like the actual structure of like, you know, um, <clears throat> who's coffers are getting filled by this, right? I mean, part of the problem is that the advocates want to speak with such zeal about charter schools that they won't admit that there's a, just a ton of scammy, shitty charter schools out there that are really kind of predatory institutions that are sort of soaking up money. If I felt that there was meaningful differences between these things, if they offered different learning opportunities and different learning styles for children, and if the people who, like John Chay, would get on board with sort of like, okay, let's eliminate all the corruption, Right. So like, um, so, you know, like, for example, New Orleans, um, uh, people talk about New Orleans as having uh, had this sort of charter charter miracle. Um, well, for one thing, the, the demographics of the city changed dramatically after Katrina. But for another thing, um, the most recent team, I think I've seen a significant majority of the schools in the New Orleans charter system got a D on their state report card. Right. So like, Miracle is a relative sort of concept, right? So like there has to be an entire sort of sea change in how we understand and talk about public charters um, before I would feel comfortable getting on board. Because the way that it functions now is it's just um, either, you know, you sort of side with teacher unions and sort of the conventional state bureaucracy, or you side with another set of things, which is technically nonprofit, but where a lot of people are still getting paid, right? Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that, you know, um, I hope I hope that the people who listen to this podcast already know, which is that like the, the nonprofit distinction means essentially nothing in American life, and nonprofits are often incredibly greedy uh, institutions. So it's just like the actually existing charter schools that we have um, are not things that I want to support. I can yeah. certainly imagine school choice as a sort of concept that I might endorse, but like right now, it's just it's totally different. Only at the paperwork level, only at the admin level. Yeah. Well, I mean, so what do you think about like, I mean, but so you're, you're for, I, what I'm getting is you're for sort of expert experimentation and just how we, how we raise right. children. Right. And right. Can, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm for like, um, look, does it have to be public? Right? I would say it doesn't have to, can we just like what I would like, if I had, could I uh, design my ideal system? It would just be, we take whatever we're spending on schools and we just send it to parents. And, you know, maybe the charter schools today aren't that, aren't that different, but you know, you expand the market by a hundred, you'd have, you know, a lot of, a lot of a thousand flowers bloom. Right. Um, I, th I think that you could, you would get, you know, creativity and you would get basically people, you, you see a little bit of this during the uh, pandemic, you see like a uh, homeschool pods and, you know, God knows what they're doing in these like groups of 10 families. And, you know, it's probably, better for the children. It's at the closest, you know, the smallest possible level. That's what I would do. I, I think you want something, so, but you seem, you'd seem you rather, you'd rather government do it, I guess. But well, I, think, I, I mean, think I mean, the, the first thing is like, I'm, I, you know, I look, I'm just a big lefty and I'm opposed to like the concept of government expenditure as like an ATM, right? Like, I'm like, I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm never going to ride the bus. So I get to take my portion of the tax dollars out to buy a Mercedes, right? Like that's yeah. not how I would function. Like I, 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 I'm never going to use the cops. So I'm going to take my portion of my tax dollars out to, to hire uh, private security. But the thing is, is like, 
Markets can only function to improve something under certain conditions, which number one is you have to have meaningful information. If you have no meaningful information, right, and most parents don't is the problem, right? So in other words, parents are terrible judges of how smart their kid is and how much they're being educated. Well, they can, and they can at least see if they're happy, right? If they get that call. Well, that, well, that's, well, that's the thing. And I mean, like, and again, like, you know, there are many things that I would get on board with if we understood that we are coming from the perspective of like satisfying life conditions rather yeah. than improving quantitative metrics, which are very stubborn and refuse to improve. I mean, the thing is, is like, look, like, you know, I'm sure you're, you've heard like a famous and very durable survey finding is Americans think American schools are bad, but they think their kid's school is good, right? Yeah. Like they, they report high satisfaction with their own school and low satisfaction with other schools, which of course they have the best information about anything about their own kid's school. Um, parents just don't know. They don't have the ability to sort of parse like what is or is not good education. And you can't blame them because neither do the professors of education. Yeah. Okay. Like, and I think it's really important to say like um, we do not have to this day, like a very clear set of best practices that produces the best quantitative metrics. Right. Despite armies of people working on this for, for decades. And the reason that we don't is because, as my book argues over and over again, um, the, the constant in any pedagogical context is the kid's brain. Right. Yeah. And teachers can't actually reach in there and muck around with it. And so the, the dominant variable coming out will be the kid's brain. So like um, even like RAND education, which is very the RAND Corporation, it's a very much a sort of conventional neoliberal school, you know, ed reform chop shop sort of think tank, even they say student side factors. So stuff that schools can't control are four to eight times more powerful determiners of educational metrics than school side variables. Right. So if we think about this, this constant analogy, like, you know, oh, we'll just use the market. Well, okay. Like, you know, the, the classic sort of capitalist thing, like I make widgets, you make widgets. If I can make better widgets than you, if I can do it more profitably, more efficiently than you, my factory will flourish and yours will close. The trouble is that like, okay, if your kid's brain is the widget, then in fact, you didn't make the widget. Somebody else made the widget. Um, you only have access to that widget six hours a day, five day days a week. And then that widget goes off and is in a completely different environment for the time that you're not at home, right? Some of the widgets are nurtured and loved and cared for. Some are battered and abused and neglected, right? And then if you say to the, to the factory owner at the end of this thing, okay, well, he got better widgets than you do. Yeah. It's a fair competition. I think it's fair for that person to say, well, hold on a minute, right? And so the breakdown of the market mechanism is simply the fact that like, Schools don't control that much of the variance. I mean, over and over yeah. again, we see uh, random selection into different schools of, of different perceived quality makes no difference for student quantitative outcomes. Yeah. Is, is our mistake more fundamental? So when I was, you know, I dropped out of high school, I think when I was 16 or 17, I worked a lot of like sort of, a, you know, a menial jobs. And it was, it was, you know, it was very interesting. I worked some time, I worked for time at, you know, as a waiter, I worked at like McDonald's. I knew I was really, really bad at that. Anything with hands, I was really bad at. I worked as a telemarketer. I actually sold subscriptions to the New York Times for a little while. I was actually good at that. I was good at, I, I realized that I was good at talking and very bad at doing things with hands. And that sort of, that was, so, you know, something I learned. I sort of knew that already, I guess. But, you know, having a few, having a few different jobs, which I, 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 I realized that a lot of people who grew up with like sort of college educated, higher class parents didn't really do. They never worked as telemarketers or waiters or, or anything like that. Um, you know, maybe we should just be, you know, sending you, sending people out of the world instead of high school, four years, you know, what about one year as a telemarketer, one year as a welder, I don't know, whatever, as apprentice, as a carpenter, and one year as another thing. I mean, would that be perhaps a better system than trying to educate most people? I think it would be a better system. I think that you would still produce some people who are good at everything and some people who are good at nothing. Of right? course. Which, yeah. is, which is a, uh, again, like a thing that I, I just is a conversation. I have a very hard time starting in the, the political left, but um, you know, everything, you know, at some point you're always going to run up against um, uh, <clears throat> people have predispositions and I do believe everyone has something to contribute and things that they are good at. The problem is, is not everything that they are good at is something that is currently rewarded with by the market uh, with like a livable income. Right. And this is, you know, a, a point that has to be stressed is, you know, people always say to me, oh, but, you know, but intelligence is this multifaceted thing. And there's different ways to be to be intelligent. And I say that's absolutely true. But. There are still things that are more favored by the labor market, and those things are not things that we can just 
change on a dime, right? So, um, you know, I, what is perceived to be valuable changes over time. So that once upon a time, if you were in the ancient world and you were a fucking giant oaf who was good at fighting and picking things up and moving them around, you would probably have a much more social status and much bigger, better ability to secure things that you want than the smartest guy in your village. Because even the smartest guy in your village was working with, you know, like Bronze Age weapons or whatever, Bronze Age, Bronze Age tools. Um, <clears throat> Now that oaf for once upon a time would have been celebrated as like uh, the, the warrior leader of his people. Now he is struggling as a day laborer, right? And, and, and can't uh, pay his mortgage or whatever. Um, and I also think that that evolution can continue. So, you know, one of the things I've been sort of predicting for a long time is that eventually right now, if you have a certain kind of analytic mind, if you have like a, you know, you know what they, they call G, the G factor, uh, uh, raw cognitive pro- processing power. Um, right now, it's very highly skilled, and it is highly correlated with skills and things like computer science and engineering and bio, uh, biomedical science and things like that that are very well rewarded by the market. But you can easily imagine, right, a scenario where the way that technology evolves, that stuff actually becomes much less valuable because the computers do it all anyway, right? Like, it'll probably, you know, certainly I'll be long dead by the time this happens, but someday code is going to write all the code, Right. And so if you're telling everybody learn to code now, okay, that makes sense to me. But like um, a couple hundred years in the future, right? I don't know that like having a high G is going to be useful when you'll never have a G that is anywhere comparable to that of the super intelligent AI. And in that scenario, maybe the soft skills become more important again, the emotional skills, communicative skills. I don't know. But the point that I'm trying to make simply is that like – what is perceived as valuable does not have some sort of inherent like uh, integrity or validity to it where we have to say, oh, yes, this person is more valuable. I always say, look, it's not about like this person is worth more because they can be a good computer scientist in human terms, but they are worth more in the market. And so if we care about people, we have to make affordances for people who don't have those valuable skills. Yeah, I mean that that makes that makes sense. So I think one of the one of the reasons I, I, I um, one of the, the things in your book that I, I struggled with a little bit is the the uh, the you know the move towards and we you know you talked about this a little bit you know your desire to move towards away from the market system. So you, you take down one argument for the market system, but I, I don't think you dealt with the better argument for the market system. So I think that the the argument you dealt with is there's people who think everything is under your choice. So the market is sort of like a a a, a, a you know like a, a god that just distributes uh, reward and punishment based on you know your worth as a human being and your effort and you know your moral uh your moral worthiness okay so that's that's you know just as a sort of a just desserts idea of the market the other idea of the market i i think is this the hayekian view that basically you know where we need to know what society needs to know what society values in the first place you basically need the market mechanism you need the price mechanism you know when you're at the end of your book you talk about oh we you know we want um uh, you know, I, I believe we can do the social, you know, we can have a social system because look how far humanity has come, you know, in the progress and how productive we are. And I was thinking, wait a minute, I, I think I think a lot of that progress came because of capitalism, because, because, oh, came sure. because of the market system. Um, so how, how do you deal with that argument? People say, well, OK, fine. I agree with you all. I just still think the best best world for the most people is still a free market system. Yeah, I mean, I th- you just you just made a Marxist argument uh, for the record. Uh, that was, I mean, Marx's position. You know, Marx was a uh, was fascinated with capitalism, and he felt that it was its productive uh, potential was incredible. I mean, you know, his the context in which he was writing his famous works was the backdrop of uh, Victorian London, and he was seeing what industrialization was doing. Um, and you know, people always point out the bad side of poverty and and child labor and terrible environmental conditions, etc. But Marx was was uh, relentless in also emphasizing the positive side, which is that there's never been a productive apparatus like capitalism in history. And he was fascinated by it. And this is why he said, um, "You you cannot go from feudalism to uh, communism the way that uh, the Russians tried. You have to have the period of capitalism in which the productive capacity of capitalism is unleashed to the point." Where uh, you can capture that productive cap- uh, capacity and help to uh, help people who are being left behind in you know 1840s London, which is you know, truly a humanitarian disaster in many ways. Um, that's the sort of Marxist argument, right? Um, the question is always, okay, you know, wh- how much is enough production, right? Like a factoid that I throw around all the time because I just think it's so illustrative is in the 1930s, um, one American farmer could produce enough food 
for four people to eat in a year. Okay, so so he could feed four people for a year in a year, one farmer. Now it's more like 125, 135 people that a single farmer can feed. Food, uh, feed right, we have seen in exponential growth in uh, the ability to, for example, to feed people, or in our, our you know, in manufacturing, etc. Just what we can do now is incredible compared to what we could do even you know less than 100 years ago. The question I think for people. Uh, for anyone of any political stripe is like, at what point does that productive capacity become so incredible, right, that um, the argument that no one should have nothing becomes just sort of like morally obvious? You know, if you look at like Star Trek socialism, right, um, I think that like, there's no implied necessary period of like, serious like revolution in like a Marxist in a sort of a sort of the sort of Star Trek vision of like a future in which everybody just just cared for because we can do it because we have all the stuff rather it's a uh you know you can imagine a period where it's just like you look around you're like well fuck if we have a replicator everybody should be able to eat right um that period when we reach the point in which we have we have enough productive capacity to begin to start to and at the margins gradually um, engage in a market socialism, right? So you still use the market as the pricing uh, control system, right? We're not sort of saying, hey, Gary, you decide what everybody wants and you apportion it, but okay. you still use the, the market as the way through which you apportion need. Um, it, there's guys who can do a much better job than I have can about of describing how that works. There's a guy, Seth Ackerman, who's written really extensively about what market socialism would look like, a gradualist market socialism in which you sort of off-ramp uh, certain goods from uh, uh, from traditional systems and into a market socialist uh, mechanism. Is this a Scandinavian model where they have, have they have markets and they have the system, but they just redistribute a lot? No, I mean, it, so it's those are probably the closest real world analogs, but it's more about um, it's the recognition that, um, uh, with the exception of maybe super intelligent AI, which is another thing that I predicted, um, we you know. Human beings are not going to be in a position of determining how badly people want things as effectively as a market does, right? So it starts from the assumption that you give the devil his due and say, one thing that capitalism is really, uh, really uh, exceptional at is having systems in place that uh, determine um, the degree to which something is demanded by a particular population and to what they'll pay, right? Um, so, so it's a way to sort of, you know, these are our arguments – um, and they've existed for a long time. I mean, this is even like pre-Marx. People were talking about this stuff. Um, there are systems in which uh, the, uh, the there's no command economy element, right? But it, in which uh, elements of the market system are integrated into a socialized system in which everyone is guaranteed a certain good like housing, healthcare, education, uh, while still using the market to be able to sort of fairly portion this out. And like I said, it gets super technical and it's, you know, people who are smarter than I am. I don't know if we're there right now. You know, I, I, I do think, though, that we are an immensely wealthy country. We're also a country that is not taking advantage of a literally unique moment in human history. This has never happened before, which is we're in a modern, advanced economy, capitalist economy. And we also are the uh, control of the world's fiat currency and have the power of the printing press. Right. And nobody else has this right now. And uh, we can do things that Ghana and Denmark and Australia can't do economically. Uh, and we should be doing more of it because we're not always going to be number one. And so as long as we're the fiat currency and our central bank is essentially setting monetary policy for the entire world in many senses, um, we should take better uh, care of that. Can I say that all this will work? No, I don't know. But um, <laughs> right now, you know, we're producing generations of people in like Rust Belt, um, decaying Rust Belt uh, cities who don't have anything to offer Google, right, or uh, the pharmaceutical industry, or to go off to do the sort of white collar jobs that the liberal arts college grads do in big cities. Um, and so they're living, you know, they're, they're dying these deaths of despair, and they're living off of phony disability claims, and they're addicted to Oxycontin. And I think that, like, these are preventable problems. But like I said, you know, that's yeah. just... Well, I, mean, I, I sort of see it. Yeah, I, I sort of. I mean, I see how much of that is spiritual and how much of that is economic. So you talk about, you know, we're greater productivity and people are still living, uh, you know, sometimes living pretty badly. I mean, there's a uh, there's a chart. I think it was made by uh, AEI or maybe some other maybe Heritage, one of these conservative think tanks, and it shows, you know, the number of Americans who have air conditioning, for example, right? And even among the poor, right? It's like ninety something percent, and it's like color TVs, and then it's like refrigeration, and you see it like people don't have this. A lot of poor people don't have this in the sixties and seventies.
But, you know, by 2010, even people we call below the poverty line, they have this stuff. So is it sort of, you know, the providing this minimum, not perfectly, but isn't the market, the neoliberal system that you don't like, isn't it doing it to a certain extent already? Well, I mean, look, like the, you know, uh, the, the fundamental uh, moral calculus is always like, you know, what is the calculation in terms of the percentage of people who are flourishing, who are surviving and who are not surviving? And, you know, where do you put, you know, if you could sort of apportion out like, uh, like, sort of, okay, how about this many less people who are truly wealthy, but this many more people who are surviving? Now, I think a, a, the a strong conservative argument from the past half century is that like it's you know it's not actually easy to do that that you can't actually just sort of wave a wand and say okay we're going to move a bunch of rich people to middle class but we're also going to move a bunch of poor people to middle class because if it was that easy more more people would want to do it um but I also must must note that you know so you know Denmark has um absurdly low poverty it has the most socioeconomic equality, the lowest Gini coefficient in the world. They also have billionaires, right? Like they have like, you know, people who are in the, whose fortunes sort of are in the billions. And if you are like the richest Denmark, I think the last time I checked, it was worth like three or four or five billion. Um, your like purchasing power is not materially that much different from Elon Musk's, right? Like once you get up to like, you know, yeah. a few billion, like it's not like you're going around saying, oh shit, I wish I had a few more billion or I could buy the things I really want. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, again, like, um, you know, I mean, I think to me, it's just like all of these things run aground on these cost diseases that we don't know how to do anything with and which seem to be an indictment of both left and right. Right. Like, I, I don't know who you would blame for the fact that, you know, flat screen TVs are insanely cheap, right? Cars have never been better. It's genuinely hard to find a bad car to buy now. Um, and yet um, education is getting more and more expensive and we can, can show essentially no, you know, improvement in terms of the, you know, quote unquote product. Yeah. Um, healthcare uh, is getting more and more expensive with very little to show for it in terms of better outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the thing that we're like, I don't know that anyone has a very simplistic sort of partisan message in saying like, Oh yeah, we can just get rid of this hard cost disease, but we can't. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I get, I pull my, my hair out because so many people in my political circle complain about like defunding education or something. We, we pay just, we spend extravagantly yeah. on education in this country. You know, Freddie. So when you when you, when you write, you're a Mar you're a Marxist. You know, I think we're. Mm. I looked forward to our conversation. I said we're going to have a lot to disagree about, and then mm. you know we talk, and we don't. You know, our worldviews are not are not that incompatible. I think we, we talk about cost disease. I see you believe in markets. I see you're okay with billionaires, and I know you've written about the term Marxist and why you're attached to it. So can, can, mm. can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think of Marxist. Yeah. I think of you need the central planning. To me, that's that central. I'm not. I haven't read nearly as much Marxist theory as you, so I. I know what i'm talking about but i i think in terms of central planning and i think of you know a forced equality so can you say yeah. what marxism marxism means to you and sort of the sure. choice to stick with that label sure yeah so you you're absolutely right like central planning is central to marxism um uh i don't think that we have any there's any point in talking about that because a marxist revolution is not in the offing right but i also think it's important to say that like yes central planning is central to the marxist uh uh discourse but i think it's important to say um so, I mean, part of the problem is just that most people who read Marx and talk about Marx don't understand Marx. Um, the first thing to say is um, Marx said very little that was sort of specific and descriptive about the post-revolutionary period. And he, in fact, said several times that that was, that was by design. In other words, he didn't want to be too... Uh, uh, to be too prescriptive because he acknowledged that he didn't know what was, what would, what would happen. So the, the fundamental thing is like the core of Marxism is this, the, the nation, the notion of surplus value, the rate of exploitation and the decline in uh, the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So in other words, uh, Marx says, um, there's this thing called the labor theory of value. It long predates Marx. Adam Smith talked about it. Um, people have talked about it both from conservative and left perspectives economically. Um, it's the idea that um, if you're trying to figure out where profit comes from, right, because capitalism is a series of exchange. I have this pen. It costs me a dollar. I give it to you. I charge 150 whatever. Where does that profit come from if, if – Somewhere in the system, there has to be some sort of a sense of things have values that can be assigned. Um, the Marxist answer and the answer for other people, um, I think Ricardo as well, um, is, is, from, is from labor. 
right? And so Marx's observation is that, well, it's the Marx, it's the, the workers are being paid X wage, but the uh, capitalists are selling uh, what they produce for more than, uh, uh, than it costs him for them to make it. Then, you know, the, the surplus value is being captured by the capitalist when it's being made by the worker and that's exploitation. And that's the center of all of it. Right. And in fact, Marx said his only contribution to socialism was exactly in this thing. It's a nerdy economic theory. It has nothing to do with listening to Rage Against the Machine. It has very little to do with being Cuban and wanting to overthrow Batista, right? Um, that that theory, of course, is, is highly criticized. Many people reject it. They said that it doesn't reflect things. It's also um, very much dependent upon, again, like the perspective of a guy who was looking at 19th century uh, UK and places where people went to factories and they just literally made things. And you could say, okay, here's this widget. We produced it. The, the uh, laborers only got X uh, pounds. The capitalist sells it for Y pounds. That's exploitation. It's become much more difficult. You look at someone like me, right? I sell a newsletter. I'm my only employee. You know, am I a capitalist or am I a, uh, or am I a uh, member of the proletariat? You can certainly make the, the, the argument that that stuff breaks down. Um, but at the center of that is uh, uh, a vision of sort of an economic theory that is, that is Marxism. It is certainly associated with a command economy. Um, to the degree that he defined anything, I mean, Marx's vision is sort of of, I mean, it, it is called communism. And it's, you know, it's uh, decentralized uh, autonomous bands of people who are free to enter or exit. So you can go someplace else if you don't like your particular commune, your particular band, um, where everybody contributes according to what they're good at, everybody receives what they need, and where everything is uh, led by direct democracy. Obviously, that doesn't have a lot to do with the, social, with the Soviet Union or China or Vietnam or anywhere else. Um, that's not going to happen anytime soon, right? So because it's not going to happen, I would like to remain informed by the Marxist principles that I've come up with, and I still believe them in an abstract sense, but it's just like, it's like having you know, a strong moral prescription on what we're going to do when we colonize Mars. Um, it's still so far off that it's not, like, it's not useful for me in a day-to-day -day way of trying to na navigate the world. Let's say Alpha Centauri instead of Mars, maybe. Um, but I want to remain informed by it. You know, the problem is, is like, as I said, a lot of people don't understand uh, the, you know, the, what what communism is. I mean, I, I wrote um, I wrote uh, in a piece not that long ago. Uh, you know, Marxism has nothing to do with equality. Right? It's one of the fundamental misunderstandings. So like, Marxism is a is an engine to create equality. It's just it's not only is it not true, it was directly refuted by both Marx and Engels. Uh, independently. They both said it's a, it's a nonsensical goal because anything can be evaluated on so many different criteria that you can never uh, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of decide what is and is not equal. And what they wanted was an end to exploitation, right? And, and that's the center of it. But unfortunately, so wait, do you have a theory as to why all these countries that call all these countries and all these people who call themselves Marxists got got it got it so wrong? Because these people, you know, people like Lenin and uh, people like Stalin, they they read a lot of Marx and Engels and they talked about it a lot. And you're saying yeah. that they were they were completely out to lunch. They totally misunderstood them. So so what do you think happened there? Um, what happens is that like and again like I think this this is all strong fodder for a critique that says that Marxism is just too, it requires too much for it, for it to ever to exist, the communist revolution to ever happen. And therefore it's not realistic. I think that's a good critique, but what happened is that, so one thing that's central to Marxism is you can't have what's called state capitalism. State capitalism is just uh, what the Soviet Union was, which is that like you still maintain a system in which you have some sort of currency exchange and in which different people are exchanging things based on a certain, uh, apportionment of value that is determined by a top-down authority. Um, that's just capitalism under a different name, right? And it just permits sort of more sort of bad faith actors to enter into the system and to be corrupt, which is exactly what the Soviet Union was. So that's one thing. But the problem is, is like, if you get rid of that, the alternatives are so out there and they're so divorced from the current way that human setups exist that um, it becomes essentially impossible to put into place. So therefore, China is a state capitalist or was a state capitalist anyway, uh, system and the USSR state capitalist system. The other thing is that you can't have socialism in one country. 
right? Like the, the, the revolution has to be this cascading workers' revolution that proceeds all around the world because central to the system is the, you know, I said that you have this right of exit when you were inside your particular little band, right? But if you've just sort of taken over one country, um, number one, you're going to be deprived of all of the things that you need to be able to have a live a modern life because, you know, no one country has access to all the resources and expertise that you need. But also you don't have that right of exit, right? If you look around and you're like, wow, Cambodia is a shit place to live. I'm in this, you know, Marxist paradise. I want to go over to this other place. You can't do it if it's only happening in one country. So I, I think the, the reason why people have become bad Marxists is because um, they are confronted with constraints of prerequisites that are so out there that they can't possibly be met in anything realistic uh, time frame. So they begin to bend this, the, the theory in all manner of ways in a way to sort of fit what, what their situation is, which is what Leninism is. Right. I mean, the, the whole the whole Bolshevik uh, thing, uh, I have a lot of uh, respect for aspects of the Bolshevik re- revolution, but uh, Lenin's writings and, and also Trotsky's to a large extent are sort of grappling with the fact that, OK, we can't do what we're saying we want to do. What do we do instead? And that's how you end up with people thinking that, like, the point is equality, because equality seems like a much more sort of achievable goal within a little bubble of a communist country that can't possibly do what Marx said they should do. So is there, is there a, like a, you mentioned a few authors, if some people want to learn more about sort of your Marxism versus what they traditionally think of Marxism, if they're just looking at the Soviet Union or whatever, uh, who would you recommend? Well, I would look at, I, I mentioned Seth Ackerman, if you want, like sort of contemporary sort of theory of what market socialism would look like. There's a guy named Peter Frace, um, who's a really interesting guy who sort of looks at, he's got, he wrote a book, I think it's called Four Futures or something like that. And it sort of looks at the different ways in which humanity can progress from now. And it talks about um, the challenges of getting to the kind of situation that is advocated for uh, by uh, uh, in a, in a conventional Marxist analysis. There's also a guy called Robert Brenner, um, who uh, is a Marxist professor. He wrote a book called Economics of Global Turbulence, which I think was published in 2006, which was fortuitous because I've never read anything that more perfectly predicted the financial crisis than uh, Economics of Global Turbulence did in 2006. But he's written extensively about like, okay, um, you know, why have we never gotten to a stage where, where this sort of thing would be possible? And what's a real, more realistic sort of road through which to go through? Okay, great. We'll, we'll put links to this. Uh, so just going back to the sort of the, the main focus of your book, what, one of the things that, you know, sort of uh, also like took me aback by a little bit is you keep, uh, you know, you talk about the, the behavioral genetics and you talk about the, uh, the, the twin studies, adoption studies, you know, that's all great research. I think it's such, such important research. I don't think it's not even for just for education. I think for everything, you know, every field, I think you gotta, you gotta know, take genetics seriously, but you, you keep introducing this qualification that says, you know, uh, this does not mean we have to accept racist or sexist theories uh, of group differences. And, you know, you say it once, you say it twice, and then I'm like, okay, but please not again. And then it comes again, and then you keep saying, mm-hmm. I want to reemphasize it again. Um, put aside, I mean, just put aside race because it's so, uh, you know, it's, it's, so, it's such a combustible and difficult issue. Um, like sex differences, like is it a sexist theory to believe that men and women um, have different qualities and, you know, in a, in a perfectly free system would, would uh, gravitate towards different fields and interests? Is that, is that something that it's it's bad for people to believe? Because I sort of got the impression that, that you know, I sort of got that impression from the book. So um, I, I think the first thing I'll say is um, I would have, look, I don't, I, I don't believe, although people constantly uh, think that I do, uh, I don't believe that um, uh, in the sort of uh, race science theory that is typically accredited to Charles Murray, although I think that his own views are more complicated than people think. Um, I would have liked to have written it twice. I mean, written it once, excuse me, um, but I couldn't have gotten it published by St. Martin's if I didn't. <laughs> okay. That's, that's the, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. you know, I, sorry. Like I, you know, I, I was a first time author and they're one of the biggest booksellers in the world. I didn't have, yeah. you know, um, so look, um, I will say like, I, I would start with the thing is that like, just like the empirical record on intellectual differences between men and women is not as strong as people seem to think. Like there's fat tails theory. So fat tails theory is the idea that there is um, greater variability in men's intelligence than in women's so that um, men are more likely to be dullards than to be uh, uh, and to be geniuses yeah. than women. So that, like you have like, there's a broader range. Um, but, uh, there's data sets in which that doesn't appear to be true. Yeah. Um, some people will say that only one tail or the other is fat compared to the other thing. And, um, it, it also is, I mean, 
I think that like the more G loaded a test is when people say that the more it means like the more that an IQ test is designed to uh, test um, only raw cognitive processing as opposed to things that could be considered um, enculturated. Right. Um, so for example, there's a thing um, called Raven's progressive matrices and Raven's progressive matrices. You know, people always complain, oh, those, these tests are, are cultural. Uh, well, there's not even any words in a Raven's progressive matrices. It's just, they show you a series, like, they show you three um, diagrams in a row. And that'll be like, uh, it'll be a picture and maybe like the first one, there's like a black dot in the upper left corner, then upper right corner, then a lower right corner. And then you have to pick which the last one is right from a range of choices. So you're looking at how things are, are sort of spinning spatially and you're trying to sort of predict what comes next based on the pattern established beforehand. Um, it's as far as I understand, um, it's just not the case, right? That um, more G loaded tests uh, are showing higher, uh, uh, capacity for men than tests that are less G-loaded, which is what you'd expect if um, there was a strong sort of gender difference and would also what you expect if culture was particularly meaningful. So, I mean, for me, empirically, I'm, I'm not convinced that we have the evidence that this is true simply in the quantitative sense. I do think that in many of the uh, uh, in many of the contexts in which this happens, culture is probably pretty strong uh, in terms of um, dictating sort of like what looks like an attractive uh, position to people. However, I will also say that um, there really is a pipeline problem. Um, and it really does appear that a lot of women self-select out of these things. The trouble is that you're never going to convince people who are inclined one way or the other um, to decide, okay, is, you know, are these sort of cultural preferences, uh, aspects of a sort of some sort of nature that are like, you know, are uh, uh, evolutionarily conditioned or, you know, are they the product of a sort of, of, of bias? So for example, there's about as many math majors at the undergraduate level um, at, of women who are women as men, right? It's a, a little, little bit more men, but it's uh, traditionally it's just about as many num number of women who are going into it. Um, however, there's dramatically fewer women graduate students. Um, some people will say, well, that's because men are better, better at math. Um, other people have said, well, look, if you actually look at what's happening, a far higher percentage of the women uh, who are math majors are going to be uh, K through 12 teachers in math, right? And this is probably a rational decision for them to make because um, uh, it's a it's a steady and stable career path in which you can do math and use your math degree um, to get a, a good middle class job. And many men face the stigma where they don't want to be K 12 teachers. Who is right? I don't know. I am not closing my mind to the possibility that yeah. there are. Uh, uh, sex differences in uh, the sort of tendency to be good at math or not. But I think that the evidence is slighter than people think. And frankly, if you look at the sort of the curve, right, if you're just looking over time, women are catching up like crazy because women are absolutely clobbering men in the classroom right now. And it's going to become a bigger and bigger deal over yeah, time. Well, in the general. fact that women are clobbering the men in some things and not other things like they're, you know, they're doing very well in biology and not doing very well in physics. I think you mm -hmm. have to like, play around a lot to say, well, biology has overcome, you know, millennia of structural sexism, but, but physics hasn't like, what's wrong with you physicists? Like they must be <laughs> uniquely terrible right. people. But I, I do have to say like, there's a lot of math and research biology, right? Like I'm saying like, I, you know, like it's, yeah. but it's I, not just G it's not just G. I mean, to be a mathematician, you've got to have G that's just one factor of many. You have right. to have the, the passion of it compared to everything else you can be doing. If women are just more interested in people and equally interested in things, they'll just gravitate towards more towards, towards the, the people's set stuff right um so you know to to assume that you'll get to have you know that you know in a fair system you'd have equal amount of mathematicians or or whatever you'd have to assume not just g is equal but you need you need everything to be equal because if right. they're equal in g and they're different in ambition or you know work ethic or interest or whatever then then you, you won't get equality right but i you know I, I referenced the emerging gender gap in education broadly because to say that like you know um uh if we were not careful if we wanted to do a particularly clumsy analysis you could just look at that and say, well, women are smarter than men, right? If you take a look at a big, big, broad, broad you know, um, like it's not just like certain, something, certainly. I mean, right. I, I think the SAT is a better measure than GPA, and I, I don't think women are beating men there. So, okay, <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, I agree. But I, what I'm saying is, is just that, like, you know, um, we shouldn't just say, oh, hey, look, there's so many more biologists than, than physicists among women. Um, you know, the simplistic story is that, you know, they're smarter in those domains because, like, um, again, like, you know, 
uh, in many metrics, even that are tilted quantitatively, right? Like the number of women who are entering into uh, STEM fields now outpaces the number of men simply because now, again, the, the proportions are different and that does point in the direction that you're talking about. Right. But women have opened up such an overwhelming advantage of men in terms of getting to the stage of college of, of, of enrolling in college and getting to the stage where they declare a major that now, depending on whose numbers you look at, there's, you know, we're, we're looking at like equity in many STEM fields. And, you know, so again, I think this is just to say like culture does matter. Economics does matter. And these sort of social science things are not things that we should wave our hand away and say that they don't matter. Yeah, that's fine. I guess I was just asking about the sort of the tone in which the the book talked about. I get, but I get it's it's an editor's thing, and they want you to you just draw a bright line and you know not confuse anybody. So so yeah, right. I, I totally get that. Um, you know, one, so like just uh, so that's I mean this uh, we'll just move a little bit away from the book. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm interested in you and your sort of uh, your sort of public persona. You know, I was I was interested to learn you you recommended me as a conservative uh, mm. author. People read, I appreciated that a lot because I you know we'd never talked before, and I'd appreciated mm-hmm. you as sort of a left wing author. So sort of we you know we both had like a mutual appreciation from from afar. Um, and I think one thing you know I, when I read your stuff, I, I see a little bit of myself in the sense that. You are you write in a very sort of personable way. Like I I read your Substack and I feel like I sort of know Freddie. Like before mm-hmm. I, before I knew him, I you know I think I sort of get a, a little insight into sort of your fears and what made you who you are and sort of your uh you know your your, your what's motivating you emotionally, not just sort of what you think at the intellectual level. I do a little bit of this. I don't do as much of this as you. I mean, I think you really are you you focus on that a, a little bit more. But I, but I, but I do a little bit more than that. Probably more than the uh, typical author. Um, do you do that consciously is that just something you just sort of is that just the sort of the way you like to write have you thought about this in in, in any uh, real sense just whatever your thoughts are here I mean, you know, my whole career has been 15 years of flying blind. So I don't, you know, there's, there's very little, there's been very little sort of uh, planning going on. Um, so I, I, on the one hand, I do think I just sort of write the way that I write because that's just, you know, how I do it. And that's how my mind works. Um, that's how I talk through problems. On the other hand, um, I, you know, I, I keep telling people all this. Um, it's just that like, uh, if you want to write for a living, you are entering an extremely crowded market. And it is remarkable to me the number of people who attempt to enter that market without some sort of clear reason for why they would be chosen over anyone else, right? Yeah. Some people are lucky in that, like, you know, they just really, really know uh, uh, certain fields. If you're an epidemiologist, the past couple of years have been really good for you if you're, if you're a writer who's really into epidemiology, a uh, science writer, because, you know, all of a sudden there's a, a big market, right? Um I haven't got anything like that. Um, I, I read a lot about education. I got a PhD in a sort of related field. I wrote a, a dissertation that was very education researchy, but um, I'm not an expert in anything. Um, but um, I just, I write a, a lot, uh, pathologically a lot. And um, I have been able to therefore develop a voice over a long period of time. Um, and I'm selling people that voice and I'm selling them um, an unusual perspective. Um, you know, I am someone who, was a red diaper baby. And I came from, um, uh, you know, I mean, my grandfather was, uh, was the, the subject of, a uh, McCarthyite bill. Like him, literally his name was in the bill in the Illinois state Senate, uh, long, long ago. And my father was a big lefty and my mom was, and, um, my, my father's, uh, middle name is Eugene for, uh, Gene, Eugene Debs. Um, and I've been a, an activist my whole life. I still go out and do not at all contrarian, totally normal lefty uh, activism, but I'm also just like deeply dissatisfied with where the left is and especially where liberals are. Um, I think that there's just, just really, really ruinous um, set of wrong understandings about what, cl- what classes, about what socialism is, about what being on the left is. And so I have a perspective that many, many people are like um, hungry for someone who is embraces the values of the left but hates the current left and its culture. And I happen to fit the bill. Um, but that's all, that's all like, that's all organic. I mean, I didn't, I haven't like made up any of this stuff to be more marketable. It just happens that that is um, to my advantage uh, in this marketplace right now. And yeah. if you're yeah. another snarky liberal who, you know, has woke politics and tells shitty jokes on Twitter, like what are you selling me 
that I can't get anywhere else. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The differentiation thing is important and sort of being organic and true to yourself is important. Uh, Steven Pinker's book, uh, uh, the, the book of style. I've never read a style book before just because Steven Pinker, I picked it up and he talks about when he uh, talks to people um, who he admires that with the people whose writing he admires, he often asks them, you know, which style books have uh, influenced you. And the vast majority of the time they'll say, you know, I never read one in, in my life. And uh, you know, so it's just, it's sort of some people just, really, really like to write and they're, and they're good at it. I think Scott Alexander, who I think is also a great writer at one point said, you know, it's just, it's just natural. I just, I just write, you know, what's in my head. And I, I do that too. I mean, it sounds like you do that. So there is a, there is a sort of a, um, you know, a sort of a, just a, a passion and a gift for writing. Um, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of us who are like that sort of do see it, you know, I see it as a sort of an extension of myself, like my politics and my personality and my experience you know, they're all sort of intertwined, right? If my personality was fundamentally different, if my experiences were fundamentally different, if I, if I interacted with people in a different way, you know, my ideas about the world would also be different. And I think that, you know, not having sort of that compartmentalization, you know, if you just sort of, you, you it's sort of, you know, in uh it's sort of all integrated within you. I think that, that that is sort of the key to being really good at this. Like I think, like you know, when, when before I was uh, before I was writing publicly, you know, I would talk to my friends. I would we would be texting. We would be calling about about politics all day, right? And you know, it's a sort of a a, a a cliche: do what you love. And most people probably can't make it living doing what they love. You know, whatever fantasy sports or whatever if that happens to right. be your passion. If it is something you can make a living off of, you know, then you're pretty lucky. Yeah, you know, I'm definitely very lucky. I also don't know that this will last. You know, like I'm, I'm, uh, my my whole life is a series of reversals. So I'm, I'm, you know, like I, I said before, the week that uh, Substack uh, approached me about doing their Substack Pro program last year, uh, I had just accepted a job uh, to make fifteen dollars an hour at a uh, junk removal company, um, and I am well aware of the fact that a year from now. I could be making $15 an hour at a junk removal company and I'm not counting any chickens, which I think is also important in life. Yeah, that's, that's true. So, well, we're, so we used, uh, you talked in the book, you talked about, so you spent some time at the university of Rhode Island. You were a PhD student, right? So, so I got my, uh, my master's at uh, URI. I got uh, my PhD at Purdue. Yeah. Okay. And you never, you never worked in, you, did you ever work an academic job? I did. I worked at Brooklyn College, and then they fired me, uh, which is cool. I mean, I, I I got a job as an administrator, so I w- I became extremely disillusioned with my field with academia. I mean, I, I was always I was never a romantic about academia. I grew up there. I mean, I, I grew up on a college campus, and um, so I never romanticized it. Um, but I, you know, I went to school. I kind of was told by people uh, who I knew that you know in the field that I was in, which was like rhetoric and composition or writing studies, or whatever, it's focusing on writing. Um, you know, uh, there was a time when you could do quantitative research in that domain. Again, my grandfather, he was a professor and his field was this field. Um, at one point he was the president of the national council of teachers of English. And he was hooking kids up to, um, polygraph machines, not to do a lie detector, but to measure their stress levels in response to given literary, uh, literacy tasks and tests and things like that. Um, and there was a time when you could do that, but the field um, was infected by cultural studies and all of the empirical stuff got pushed out. And so I found myself in a very weird position. And so I just basically said, and to their credit, they said, okay, I went to my faculty at Purdue and I said, look, like I got education faculty I can work with. I'm taking all these stats classes and methods classes. I'd like to just write a dissertation that's appropriate to that domain. And they didn't know what to do with me anyway. So to their credit, they were like, sure, go for it. It's academic freedom. So I wrote a dissertation that was not really fit with my field. I was on the job market for a couple of years. I got some interviews with no bites. And then I got a job at Brooklyn College doing an administrative job that I hated and I was bad at. And they fired me, and hey, all all's well that ends well. So <laughs> it all worked. It all worked out. The uh, yeah. uh, so just uh, from from the inside, do you think? Uh, do, do you are you optimistic about sort of the education uh, sort of bureaucracy or acad- ac- the academic portion of the education sort of uh, reforming itself and accepting your ideas, or is is this something? Oh that's no, beyond hope. Not at all. No, 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 no. Um, look, like um, uh, the whole system. I mean, we should. You know, I I I'm take I take care to say this all the time. Um, anything having to do with competitive emissions is talking about a small set of people. I talk about the SAT all the time and how the, the argument against it is totally bogus. And it is. Um, but, um, 
you got to understand like the vast majority of colleges are uh, not competitive in any meaningful sense. Um, and in fact, are constantly looking for more enrollment. They're, you know, they're actively beating the bushes uh, for more students so they can pay the bills, um, uh, including Brooklyn College, including the CUNY colleges that I was working for. Um, yeah. But then you have yeah the elite schools. It's less than 30 percent of schools. Um, uh reject more students than they accept for to, to, for one like sort of thing. Um, but those schools, um, they want students who uh, are going to have parents who have don- who can donate now or will become wealthy donors in the future. Again, the, in either case, the, the easiest way to do that is to select for kids whose parents are already wealthy. Um, it's not a particularly big secret within those schools. Um, academic rigor outside of places like Caltech and MIT and Rensselaer or whatever um, those uh, academic rigor has always been sort of a fig leaf. Um, a school like Harvard will sort of cream off, you know, 10 or 20 percent of their uh, entering class who really are like um, unusually academically gifted. And then the rest is made up of potential donors. That's true of their affirmative action programs. They go and they find, you know, a kid whose uh, Nigerian dad owns a, a mining company and he moved here two years before the kid was born. And that kid is there, is there, you know, supposed affirmative action uh, slot, diversity slot. Um, they're not going into the inner cities and, and pulling out black kids to sort of hand them poor black kids to hand them things. Sorry to bust anyone's solutions. Um, the, the, the system is broken. And, it, you know, um, I think that there's going to be, you know, we're, we're going, the enrollments have been going down because there's a population bust and, uh, I think it's sooner or later there's going to be some sort of a uh, major shakeup. Um, it's likely that the I, I think that it, there's a, a very decent chance that outside of the most elite institutions, tenure will no longer exist in my, within my lifetime. I think that that's a very likely outcome. Um, and uh, unfortunately, what they won't do is eliminate uh, these immense bureaucracies that are just sucking up every dollar that you could imagine. You see, but, you see, no, you see, I, you see the I, I don't. I don't feel have good. I don't have good. Uh, Good hopes for uh, academia. Yeah, but you say the 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 tenure is going to be getting rid of. Do you think that the uh, uh, they're going to sort of be victims of their own sort of failures? I mean, do do you, do you see the culture going in a way where, like, I think you know, I feel like the prestige of these uh, our university degree has sort of peaked. I think that, you know, if there was a poll about you ask Republicans, like even like five, six years ago, they would say universities do more good than bad. Right. And now that, you know, that's completely switched. And I think, you know, is there, is there a point we're getting where look, Harvard will be more prestigious than not going to, to college, but where the marginal university degree or the marginal master's degree might actually be seen as, as a negative, at least in certain parts of the country or in certain communities. Do you think we might get there? Sure, that's definitely possible. I mean, one thing we should point out is like, you know, so there was a Briggs uh, is a famous Supreme Court case that outlawed certain kinds of ways in which on racial uh, justice grounds, racial equality grounds, outlawed certain kinds of tests that um, employers could implement in order to let people in as employees. Um, And part of the reason why college uh, became such a uh, sort of dominant mode through which white collar work uh, employers hired people was because it was a way to circumvent Briggs, right? I can't give my my potential employees SAT test, but uh, the local state university can, and it became a you know it just became a screening mechanism in that sense. Um, but Briggs has been sort of whittled away by later uh, cases for uh, for a very long time. It functionally doesn't provide much of a protection anymore, um, and now also with sort of digital surveillance of any candidate, where um, you know a, a potential employer can look at online and find out tons of things about a person, um, it's just less salient sort of now. And so there's just less reason for them to need that sort of screening mechanism. Um, I I think college is always going to exist. I think it would be far healthier if instead of, um, you know, uh, if, you know, instead of setting a goal of, you know, half the population having a, a college degree, which we're not close to yet, but um, if we set a goal for maybe a quarter, that would be a healthier system and have the degree actually mean something. Um, and, you know, I present a lot of different options for ways we could go in the book. But um, unfortunately, the uh, the faculty have tied their own hands because they're becoming more and more addicted to um, op- opposition to assessment for its own sake. Right. Like I, I can't I can't express to you how much sentiment there was when I was in grad school and when I worked in CUNY um, like grading is the hand of oppression. Um, we, we shouldn't sort good or bad. Um, you know, who's to say what, you know, I don't, 
students can put hand in everything late as much as they want. Um, I give everyone an A. I, you know, all these things are sort of sort of tearing down the system through which you say who is good and bad. They don't seem to understand like that is the function that society is paying for. Right. Um, I mean, higher education uh, in this country, you know, accounts for a few percent of GDP. Right. Which is like a lot of fucking money. And um, uh, we will stop paying that money if uh, it's not fulfilling this function that uh, the sort of capitalist system wants it to do, which is to sort good from bad and create a hierarchy and a ranking for, for hiring. And they think that they can get rid of that and they'll continue to be funded just on the basis of like, you know, learning is for everyone. Uh, and I think they're in for a rude awakening. Yeah, that's that's crazy what you say about the education department. So I, I was I got my PhD in political science just in 2018. So I was teaching at UCLA, and there was I mean there, it was you know mostly liberal and you know a liberal school, but there was none of this. Oh, you could hand in your paper whatever you wanted. There, you know we had grades, and we, you know we had to go easy on them. And I would just you know I would let let things slide. But there was there was still at least the pretense of you know you you have you have exams and you have assessment and you know the question is right or wrong and you have to turn in your paper on time it's just it sounds like that that's not all of academia it sounds like it's just education has gone maybe in a well, field, also, field, completely crazy i mean here's here's the, the, the dilemma is if you don't ease up mm-hmm. on the graduation requirements if you don't ease up on uh the uh uh sort of you know putting all these hurdles in the way of them um then the schools are going to sort of cease to function because the fastest growing expense in higher education is remediation, uh, particularly in community colleges and, you know, sort of open, open enrollment universities, you know, sort of low uh, competitiveness, uh, state schools and private schools. Um, they're just, there's just skyrocketing amounts of money being put into remediation because um, you're pushing more and more kids through the high school pipeline who, who didn't actually, who shouldn't actually graduate, who do, right? Because again, the, the policy apparatus put immense pressure on the schools and the districts. You got to get these kids graduated. So they did. Now these kids are graduating. They have no skills. They show up at college. Now the buck has been passed further down. So your dilemma is I can spend a ton of money to remediate them. And for the record, a lot of remediation stuff doesn't work anyway, uh, or I can just let them through, give them the degree, put them out mm-hmm. onto the market, and yeah. hope that the employers don't eventually realize, oh right, this degree doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. These kids can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, I think, I think, yeah. They're, there's something there, and the, the just they're discrediting themselves. I think the cultural stuff. There's them being so clearly identified, sort of with a with a uh, certain part of the country. I think that that's that's also bad for them in the long run, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, hopefully, hopefully they decline. I don't know how or. If it'll happen, but you know, I, I think that we share that. No matter what other difference we share, our sort of uh, disillusionment with sort of the education industry. Um, so, Freddie, is there anything you know you want to plug or anything you're working on that you know you want to talk about before before I let you go? Nope, just uh, check out uh, my Substack at freddiedebor.substack.com, and yeah, pick up my book, The Cult of Smart, because um, uh, it's good. Yeah, it's like I recommend it, and yeah, of course, Freddie Freddie Substack is great. Not just he doesn't just talk about education, but he also talks a lot about a lot of cultural stuff we didn't get to. So yeah, it's, it's highly recommended. Great writer too. Thanks a lot for joining us, Freddie. Thanks a lot, Richard. Mm-hmm.